I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. Today, we are going back to the West Edge Design Fair in Dallas, Texas, with designer Sherry Hayslip. I have been working with the West Edge Design Fair since, I think, 2015. I've been producing the panels and conversations since 2016, and as is the case every year, it gets more challenging because I... I push myself to bring you designers you know, creators you don't, and topics that force you to think about the business and how it affects you and your impact on the business of design. I speak with creators who come from all walks of life and creative thought. Today, you're going to hear my conversation with Sherry Hayslip, one of the most cerebral designers I know. By this, I mean that she puts more thought into the context of the design as it affects those who will be living with it. I would also say that she is one of the most underappreciated designers I know. She is an international talent. She's award-winning, has Fortune 500 and celebrity clients. She works on a wide array of projects and styles, and there is no shortage of press coverage. But in my opinion, she is in the conversation for one of America's greatest talents. Hear her approach, and you recognize that she is a very special creative. You're going to hear from Sherry right after this. For over two years now, you have heard about my partnership with Thermosol. So you know that I have extremely high standards for Convo by Design partnerships. Thermosol is an extraordinary partner because there is this rare combination of intuitive design with exceptional performance. They have state-of-the-art facilities located in Round Rock, Texas, and a company that's about to celebrate 65 years offering excellence in form and function. The Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series presented by Thermosol is a programming feature that regularly showcases remarkable design talent and how they do what they do and the manner in which they do it, allowing designers to emulate successful strategies and make smarter clients who know what questions for of top professionals. If you want to understand more about this company and their history, please check the show notes for the link to episode 221 with Thermosol third generation CEO, Mitch Altman. He explains the history behind the company and Really, that's what makes this company so special. Combine that with the cutting-edge technology, their world-class domestic facilities, and you have a company delivering predictable elegance upon which you can rely. And nowadays, how important is that? Thermosol.com. When was the last time we spoke? Gosh, Josh, it's been a while. I feel like you're eternal. It's, it's been, do you know what's funny? Um, last, like, my calendar ends at 2020. Oh, <laughs> and it's not on I've, there. No, I've got, I've got, <laughs> there's this huge gap uh-huh. between 2020 and 2022 now. Uh-huh. And I found that I'm not alone. It seems to be like a common <laughs> thing, right? How are you? And um, when you publish a podcast episode every week, mm-hmm. I, I have gotten to this point where, everything has gotten so busy. Do you feel the same way? Are you just incredibly busy right now? Well, it's it's amazing that I feel that we're almost busier than we've ever been. And yet it's a little bit more focused. And yet I just got off a plane from London. I left on Thursday evening at midnight almost. And I came back last night at 7 because I didn't want to miss you. Thank you. <laughs> but there was actually a wonderful dinner in London, a design-related, and uh, I didn't want to miss it either. So, yes, life is busy, but fun. Have, have you found yourself getting smaller or getting bigger? Are you traveling more now than you did pre-pandemic? Uh, as far as work or, yeah. or staff? As far, well, both. My staff is as small as it has ever been, except, well, that's not true. When I started, it grew very slowly. Uh, as I started in 
1975, uh, a long time ago. And I started with one design assistant who was very good. She was trained and she her drafting was awesome and I was very inspired with her, her name was Tish. And I just decided, I had small children and I decided that I was not going to push it, that I had a lot to learn. I was young, I had just, just taken that step. And so I gradually built it. So for, for years, it built up, built up until finally I had 20 on the design staff. And I don't think I had many more projects than I have now. And it was so many that I found myself dealing with that instead of focusing on design. And so now, through the pandemic and through people getting married or whatever, the staff is sort of... Uh, shrunk to a wonderful size and it's smaller and much more fun and just as profitable are you a good are you a good delegator i guess it depends on whom you ask <laughs> i think i think i am i think i don't need I, I totally trust my staff and so i know what to delegate to them some of them one of my staff is uh, very strong in certain areas like picking, finding oddball furniture, which I love. And so I know that's, hey, can you help us no matter what the project is? We work collaboratively. Even though I have two main senior project managers who are my life stay, one has been there 21 years and one 16 years, and they read me, you know, they, we, just, we just work so well together. I would say I just turn over to them things that need to be done. But I, I do the the basic design on every project and work with them to develop it and they do the follow-up. So I think I'm good at delegating but bad at not micromanaging if you can combine them. In other words, once I've delegated, I want to see exactly what happened <laughs> and make sure that it's, it's part of what we're trying to create. Mostly I think I, I prefer trying to see it with the client's eyes and trying to let the, my staff and those of us who are working on it um, see it with their eyes and not try to project onto them what they think might be better, uh, but more of their taste. I think the key is seeing it with the client's eyes, and that's what I think I'm good at. So I, when I edit, micromanage, I try to do that and not, not let it be about me. It's not my, the projects we do are not a monument to me. They are our clients' homes, our businesses, and I want it to reflect them. And that's tricky sometimes when you have things that you really love to use and uh, things that you really think are, are better than when, maybe what the client might ask you for. Uh, but I think there's always a way to find something that you and the client both like. It. I ask the question because it's something that I just find absolutely fascinating in dealing with high-level creatives, such as yourself, you, you, have, you take the time to work with your clients, your clients work with you, they tell you their, their deepest desires and, and what they really want, and you separate yourself, you divorce yourself from, you know, stylistically from what you may like to try to understand fully what they like. Then I feel like there's this, this disconnect when it comes to having staff, the only way to, and, and I think that, I bring this up because I know that a lot of creatives, a lot of designers are struggling with this right now. Hiring right now is incredibly hard. I probably don't need to tell you that, but hiring is very challenging right now. And you get to the point where high-level creatives have this vision and this idea, you're, you're an artisan. And to be able to then separate yourself and let someone else execute it, I kind of envision like an artist who's doing a painting like they sketch it out and then they add numbers to it and they, <laughs> right and then they say to an apprentice or an assistant okay now you fill it in I'll come and check it out when you're done and I can't see any creative ever being happy with that at the same time in order to grow and continue to develop as a firm not necessarily as an individual you don't really have a choice that's true and I think that that is uh kind of a shortcoming and a strength of our firm, <clears throat> pardon me, and that is because I can't. I, I, don't, I can't grow to be a big firm. I tried that. And I, I 
we had wonderful work. We did five or six projects over 15,000 square feet at a time, you know, at one time. Uh, and I couldn't have done it without a large staff to do that. But I believe I'm, I'm really happy with being smaller. My kind of young ambition to be big and famous uh, has kind of like settled back down maybe into the more philosophical approach that I was trying to take as an idealistic new designer. And that is to do good design that fills a deep need that the client has, whether they even can put it in words or know it, but do something that's beyond what they could have done or even realized could be done uh, within the scope of what their dreams are. And they don't even call them dreams. They like, well, we need to get this house done and I have five children and so forth. But they all have, if you get to know them well enough, they all have something that they really are craving in their lives that uh, is very satisfying, that they can be proud of, that uh, gives them joy. I, you know, I'm, I am not into these so austere interiors that you walk in and you feel, hmm, this looks really nice. Wow, this is really chic. I'm into interiors that walk in and say, oh, this feels so good. This is just right. And it's always individual. And my individual is the client. I don't really care if his neighbor likes it as much as he does. I'm not looking to impress the cognoscenti. I'm looking to make that house just what it needs to be. And so by not delegating that and not assigning so much of it, that's where that micromanagement comes in. Uh, and why I think I'm enjoying a smaller firm because I can be more on top of it. But when I say we're collaborative, we all work together, the entire family. There may be three or four assistants in there. There may be our uh, subcontractors that come in and draft. We have people in Florida and, and you know California and so forth that help us. But when it comes down to it, I do think that there's a vision and an, an aesthetic vision that must be consistent and that must express what the clients want. A really gifted designer that assists you or um, the really, really good ones, they go out on their own and they do that for themselves. And um, some of them, and I'm blessed, that are also super gifted, are happy to be part of that creative team to create something better than any of us could do individually. Um, I once talked to, I was working on a Robert Stern building and I was talking to his uh, main man and I said, why don't you go out on your own? And he said, because then I wouldn't be able to work with Robert Stern. He said, I would, I would miss all of this input from this individual and we work so well together. And that's what I, I think makes a really strong team. How to scale it up, make it a big company. I think you're getting into a corporation more than a design firm. I think you're getting into a business. I think if you have a, a strong product, you need to have that staff to sell it. Um, I don't have that big of a brand or that specific a look or anything that is something I'm trying to sell, you know, and so therefore I can I don't need it. But many, many people want to do that and are very successful at it. And what's fun is we're gonna we're gonna look at some of your work in a moment uh -huh. and show examples of that. You mentioned Robert A.M. Stern architects as a it's a conglomerate. And and I had And it was Paul Wheaton that I was speaking to and he's really important to uh, Bob Strong. And I had a chance to, to speak with the, the four horsemen <laughs> that, run, that run it. And what uh, I found so interesting is... is did is, Paul say that to you too? Kind of, yeah. Uh, um, it was just, it's just interesting how that organization, there's four individuals and they each kind of have their quadrant of the globe. Right. <laughs> and, they, and they do their thing and they, they do it independently but with a shared with a shared vision, mm -hmm. and I bring that I bring this up because, it, well, it's it's an esoteric concept. I I have come to learn, and I want your. I feel like w one of the things that's missing in the industry, and I feel like this is something that is easily addressable, is clients can be so much better, and I don't mean I don't mean that in a way like they're difficult or they're. Demanding. They can be or they can do? They can be so much better by understanding architecture is a language. Yes. 
design is the vernacular, the 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 the, the particular speech of that language. And I feel like what's happened is, in large part, a designer will, or rather a client, will go find something on Pinterest. This has been long the bane, I can tell by the look. It's long <laughs> been the bane of designers where the client will find something on social media and send it to you and say, well, I want that. It's like, well, and I'm having a one-person conversation, sorry. Uh -huh. But the designer will say, well, if you want that, then you don't need me. Just go get it. They're telling you what they <laughs> specified. Go, just go buy it, and there, you can have that. But the value to, to a designer is so far greater than that in the things that designers do that clients don't ever see. They don't see your duck on, your duck on the water. You know, they don't see all the swimming that takes place <laughs> under, under the water. Well said. Yes. And they don't see the specification and the respecification and the following up with, with manufacturers when there's something damaged or something can't be obtained or an artist isn't available, of which you, know, you, you, you incorporate so much, so many unique elements. And by the way, I'm just gonna say this. So I learned over the years, this is a podcast. So when people say, well, you're talking about design and I can't see it, yes, you can. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna, I have a presentation and you can go to our YouTube channel. There will be a link in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, when you, when you go back and you listen to this, there will be a link in the show notes and you can see the very presentation that we're talking about here. So don't send me an email and say that you can't see it because you can. With that being said, so when I see your work and I look at a space like that. And that one actually is atypical, but I love it. That atypical. Is because I, was, I don't normally do that more, 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 more. Uh, I like to counterbalance it by negative spaces. But that is a client that is beyond more, more, more. And I love her. She's very dramatic. And it has been a great joy to work with her and to do just outrageous, almost theatrical design for her. Because so much of the time we're doing neutrals, very sophisticated, very limited, you know, using the uh, white walls. And it's just so much fun to just blow it out. <laughs> so that's a special client of mine. Do you, so going back to that idea, mm -hmm. And I, I have a feeling, and I'm, I want to know your perspective on this. So it, it feels like clients who do more work with designers thereby become better clients because they understand how the language is spoken and they understand how things work. And they can allow a designer to do their work. And in your case, it allows you to delegate that work because you're all working off the same script. Is that fair? Yes, that is. And also, ironically, I've found that it's almost an advantage if a client has worked with another designer. Because the first time a newbie client takes on a, a project, sometimes they don't understand how it works. And uh, they are offended, or they don't understand lead times, or they don't get the billing thing or something. And so by the time the second designer comes around, they're a little bit, uh, provided it was a relatively normal experience and they didn't have a horrible experience uh, they kind of do have that that knowledge of what's happening and they don't they're not surprised when they get a bill for change of scope or you know something like that and it makes it better but my very very favorite clients not only do they have an adequate budget and I'm not talking about sickeningly rich or anything although that's not bad <laughs> but uh, I mean clients that have money to achieve what you know something extraordinary something a little bit different and understand the cost of products uh, if they if they have great taste and if they have trust and the ability to let you do something a little bit different that's to me the best client I have some right now I'm so thrilled with that um, will be coming together over the, the next year and been working with one of them five years and Oh my gosh, she's wonderful. She's like, I just got back from that trip and I was looking at 18th century uh, chamoiserie wallpaper. And she said, I want to go. I want to see 18th century wallpaper. You know, and that is the kind of client you want. You want a client that responds and understands the difference and uh, gets as thrilled as you do, which I do. I still get absolutely thrilled when I see something beautiful or something unexpected. In fact, in that, you can't really see it there, but there's a, uh, the wallpaper is 
I guess it's like um, it, it sizzles, it sparkles, it's almost like three-dimensional when you get close to it, but it's, it, it's, it's got all of this pattern. And ironically, that room, which I also worked with her years ago, had a, had a neutral, creamy background. And she was tired of it, it was boring, she wanted to update it, she wanted to do something fun, and uh, she was willing to do that wallpaper. And if you could see, it's, it's just almost hallucinogenic when you see that room. <laughs> but it, I, it's funny, even, I have another client who's very, very staid in her taste, and she was at a luncheon there, and she said, oh my God, that room, it's amazing. So when you're in it, it has a vitality and something different to look at. She has very kind of period furniture, but mixing in the unexpected and having something fun is, I guess now at this stage of my career, is um, I'm like I'm braver. I don't, you know, if people don't like it, they don't like it, but as long as she is passionate about it and I like it, I, that's, that's where we're going. I like it. Um, so I may have drifted from your question here too much. No, but. not at all. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm curious with something. This is a question that, okay, so when I first, and I've said this story like a hundred times, but when I first started doing the podcast, look, I'm not a designer, I'm not an architect because I don't possess the talent. I just, but I love it. Yes. So I thought, what, what can I do that can feed my passion, right? So mm -hmm. it's this. And when I first started doing the podcast, I would sit with someone like you and I would say, so tell me, what's your favorite style, right? <laughs> and I know you, it's, a, okay, so wait a minute. So it's not a stupid question. No. It's a pedestrian question. It's very basic because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in, in regards to the work, it doesn't matter what your favorite style is because you're working off what the client's favorite style is and the talent and skill of a tremendous designer is being able to adapt and speak their language and understand what they want and deliver it. But I'm curious, what is your favorite style? Not in design, but in life. Like, what do you surround yourself with? Well, in truth, I surround myself with a lot of things that, I guess if I were a young married person, I would call it like family leftovers. <laughs> but over life, over the life of a 40-year career, I have accumulated quite a few interesting oopsies. And so I don't know that I have my design exactly the way I would do if I were starting from scratch and had no options that I could just weave in. Um, and then I don't have the budget my clients have. And my taste runs to original Giacometti and, uh, you know, a few things that I, I, quite can't, I can't quite afford. And I don't really like things that are just, just obviously reproductions. I prefer unique, one-of-a-kind things, antique things, uh, something with personality. So my house, in fact, the way I live in it is uh, a mix of many... It transcends eclectic, probably, uh, with sort of a thread of unity running through it. And my own bedroom is very, very serene. But if I were, I've thought of this a lot. And when I was a young designer, I thought, what to me is the most amazing, universal, appealing design? And I decided to call it Etruscan. And what Etruscan is, in my mind, is not technically the Etruscan that Robert Adam did, which had a lot of little filigree things. I like Etruscan culture because women were just as important as men in that culture. I like that. And they, were, they, they had fun. They weren't kept in the shadows. Uh, and it was pre-Roman. And it was sort of almost simultaneously with the Greeks. And um, I like it because it's classic but it has a lot of negative, simple spaces in my mind. It's almost like San Marco, not in Venice, but in Florence, the monastery, where there are thick white walls, deep windows, wooden shutters, uh, simple tile floors. And in a bedroom, I always see only a bookcase, a simple bed, that window with a, with a fluttering white curtain, of course, very, very simple, very white, and very, very rich and genuine, real materials, very simple. And that is sort of, if I were building a house, that's probably what I do. And it's very interesting because 
if you think about it, that thread extends through Michael Taylor kind of design or the white box of Corbusier or it uh, extends through a lot of things that we do. But to me, what makes it my room is the bookcase and the textures and the serenity where you can just actually think, which how many times do we get to do that? But you also have that window to the world and the breeze. And I, that would be my style, which I think would shock almost anybody who saw my house, filled with beautiful English and American antiques and uh, quirky kind of things and some fabulous Zubair fabric that I inherited from a, because it was the wrong dye lot, but I couldn't bear to get rid of it. And so, but that's what I, I actually would like for myself because I think as designers, and especially because I love all of the unexpected, I think that we, uh, need I think one reason the white the whiteness comes back is because we need that relief we need that sort of space to unwind from that and let let us have a blank palette and let our minds kind of like develop the poetry of design without too much visual confusion and so that's that's what I would do and that's very complicated it's kind of weird but that's if I ever got to do my own little house and of course it would be classically proportioned uh, but very very simple that's what I would like and another another one of your designs and again it yes. speaks to that very thing that you that you describe is very simple mm -hmm. very elegant mm -hmm. um, this is this is not as maximalist as the last mm -hmm. the latter but um, this seems to be more in your sweet spot. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that because this client and I always, uh, I loved her taste. And the architect, uh, they had several architects. They, the, the architect that actually pulled it together is a young architect who's now in Dallas. She used to be in New York with Peter Pernoyer. But um, he is uh, Daniel Heath. And he did a beautiful job. It was great working with him. and. You know, we had already done quite a bit because of the preliminary architects in pulling the spaces and materials together. But this is probably closer to my own taste. And I, I would joke with uh, Don and say, love this, Don, because this is what I would pick. And as we went through, there were changes, but uh, a lot of it is, you're right, it's closer to what I would probably do. But I'm very happy with my leftover Zubair. I would never have been able to get it otherwise. <laughs> it's fantastic. It, I, I'm now in my third house where I put it on the walls, the curtains, and maybe one or two pieces of furniture. It was quite a large order. <laughs> and interestingly, the correct dialogue, which did come in from Paris, that client still has that, and that was 20 years ago. You are listening to my conversation with designer Sherry Hayslip. We'll be right back. So listen, wallpaper is having a moment, a well-deserved moment that is allowing designers to craft and create in new and amazing ways. Convo by Design has a new partner this year. This partnership includes participation in our remote design house Tulsa project, of which you will be hearing a lot about this year. I've been working closely with an exclusive group of partners, and I am absolutely thrilled to be working with York Wall Coverings. This company has been crafting exquisite wall coverings for over a century, with an archive that dates back to the early 18th century. This deeply rich history provides inspiration for the future. And the designs available through the York Wall Covering Studio have long been lauded for their authenticity and craftsmanship. This art, artistry, and history combined with a commitment to continually reimagining the manufacturing process allows York Wall Coverings to provide a consistently exquisite product. For options and inspiration, find them online, yorkwallcoverings.com. You can also find their store locator tool online at yorkwallcoverings.com for a location near you. So tell me the story behind that one. Well, the story is I had a fabulous young uh, design assistant that uh, is still one of my favorites, and I won't say her name because I don't want to embarrass her, uh, but she would be recognizable to you. I have a, 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 I have a little uh, flock that have worked with me that are wonderful designers now on their own. And um, anyway, I had gone to Paris with a client and we had selected a Zubair fabric 
in Paris where all of their, their archives were, but we uh, wanted to change the coloration and we were going to use draperies in a large room so it was quite a lot of yardage. And so, and it was sort of a green ground with, I mean it's hard to describe because Zubair has so many colors. But, you know, and printed, it's similar to Fortuny, but it was, it was quite beautiful. But, uh, so the cutting, the sample came in after weeks and weeks or maybe months of waiting for it, those French, and you know, they, can, they take their time sometimes. But uh, I guess I was out of town or out of the office and the design assistant approved it. And so the order went through, I didn't see it, the client didn't see it. And the order came in and the client thought it was too orange, that it had too much orange in it. And in fact, it was a lot oranger than we had intended. It has so many shades. When I say it's green, it has some orange undertone. And so, uh, so anyway, we had to reorder it on our own and that be, be prepared, never, ever, ever approve any controversial or questionable cutting without a client sign off. Uh, because this cost many thousands of dollars, but I got the fabric. <laughs> because once you order custom, you, it's yours. And that's how that happened. But now, then the new one came in, it was just what the client wanted, and it is still, I don't have a photograph to show you, but it's quite beautiful in her room. And I've, I've loved that fabric and carried it with me. And would I do it if I hadn't inherited it, so to speak? No, I'd probably have that. But I'm glad I have what I have. Happy accidents. It was a wonderful accident. Yeah. Nobody yeah. makes mistakes on Fortuny, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> right. I have to buy that on my own. <laughs> yeah. I think the, that's one of the other things that clients don't realize is the oopsie. And they don't understand it because <clears throat> the, the truly great designers don't ever let it become a problem. Right. It's, I, absolutely. If it's our error, we fix it. You eat it. You just right. do, you just do. And so over the years, you accumulate quite a lot of things, and that is, fortunately, I like what we order for our clients because I live with a lot of it. But uh, I'm not I'm not miserable because of it. You have to, right? It's it's interesting because um, one of the things that I sort of got into after I started the show was working with set decorators, uh -huh. and I absolutely fell in love with set decorators for a couple of reasons. Because set decks represent everything that's right in the design community. You think about it. They don't work for a person. They design for a script. So you have so much more latitude to creatively adapt what you think a space should be. At the same time, you work for people in a director and a producer who can come in and say, no, that doesn't work, you need to change it. And a set decorator doesn't ever say, yes, but I like it. They say, Absolutely. no problem, <laughs> we'll get it done. They don't, they don't say no, they, they don't say no. No. They can't. Well, well if you think about it, uh, we were just talking about this before we started uh, with some friends. Because I love this book, From Bauhaus to Our House, by Tom Wolfe. Love that book, and I just reread it, really, because to think about how design is going. And one of the things that he pointed out is that things have kind of gotten warped a little bit. Now, architects are designing either for other architect, architects, not all, of course, but many, uh, are most, or if they're in the elite architect category especially, they are designing for themselves or for the, war, the design awards or for to you know, be cutting edge. But starting with Anne Rand and the Fountainhead, if, you viola if the architect feels violated, I guess they go now and feel like they need to blow up. Well, they did in her book, blow up the building because the developer changed it. But if you think about it, like the set directors, Michelangelo, he didn't tell Julius II he couldn't have what he wanted in the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> and Stanford White famously said, whatever my clients want, and he's a very respected architect, American architect, he said, whatever my clients want, even if they want an upside down chimney, I'll give it to them. But that has reversed now that instead of designing for the people that live in the houses, we're designing, you know, in some cases, these very elite, 
groups of architect, they, they can, um, they're not set decorators. I love, I have a set decorator that I work with sometimes and uh, it, it, she's, she's awesome. She can do anything and fast and uh, it's delightful. But it, it, well, in addition to that, you also have the fact that like a, uh, like a Tony Duquette, Yes. Right? Oh, who started yes. off? Who started off in the theater? Tony Duquette was one inspiration for that room you saw. Was it? <laughs> yeah. Well, not specifically. We actually did a later room that it was more Duquette inspired. Well, and what's so interesting about it is this idea of what we call a high-low mix. You know, yes. what we call eclectic, which was formerly collected. Yes. You know, whatever the vernacular happens to right. be. You know, this is the idea where Tony Duquette, who came from stage you know, and designing sets, then goes in to start designing this, uh, you know, design for well-heeled, well-moneyed clients, uh -huh. and he's still cutting off banisters and balustrades <laughs> and turning them into chandeliers. You know, he's still doing that kind of Amazing. thing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that just sort of falls under the the, the banner of creativity mm -hmm. and just going to show that money, you know, dollars don't, don't always equal cents, right? It, 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 good design taste doesn't necessarily start with money. It doesn't hurt. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, that's right. Well, it's funny that you say that because in a way, with the influence of Gropius, Mies, uh, Corbusier, there is a language of contemporary architecture and contemporary furnishings. And if you violate that, like what architect doesn't have a Barcelona chair in his office, um, you're sort of violating a code. And so you can't really be very creative. You can't put shaggy dotted polka dot, uh, no matter how artistic on that Barcelona chair and be within code and be, you know, properly sophisticated, even though that would be a lot of fun, wouldn't it? But I also like to do the, I like to do that conservative. Remember, I like that white room. But um, now, I think that in a way, it, modernism, as we know it, hampers creativity. Uh, there are, not always, I know a fabulous designer named Chad Dorsey, who designs fantastic mantles that are very contemporary, but still uh, have they're they're creative. They they don't they they work in that in that space. Um, but I I think that it's a, I think modernism hampers creativity. And if you aren't, it's kind of like an artist who isn't trained by the academy. If you're like free form, sometimes you can do something totally unexpected and wonderful that may have a limited audience, but that makes it no less valid. Yeah, and, you know it's funny too because at the same time you look at a Frank Lloyd Wright. And yes, which I love. Of course, but he's the anti-designer. He left no room for design. Right. He also was the anti-modernism in a way. <laughs> because yeah. he was back to the earth and, you know, he was more American design than European design. And, you know, some of his favorite work for me revolves around the Usonian home. Yes. Just such a simple concept, like yes. a, almost back to like a Wallace Neff, who Wallace Neff does these Spanish revivals. In, mm -hmm. I mean, just amazing, the Gillette estate, yes, you know, all absolutely. this amazing work. And yet, you know, I think he passed in the last Wallace Neff bubble house. Did you ever see a, one of his bubble houses? I haven't. If for those not familiar, the Wallace Neff, Google it. It's, it's the weirdest uh -huh. thing. It's basically an upside down swimming pool. <laughs> And there's one the, left. The Buckminster Fuller, Bruce Goff kind of realm thing, I guess. Okay, so I love Bruce Goff. I love Bruce so Goff. I've, I've seen his work. I'm working on a design house project in Tulsa. Uh -huh. And and Goff is, is prevalent yes. in Tulsa, obviously, you know, particularly around the um, Boston Avenue mm -hmm. church, which is simply magnificent. It yes. really is extraordinary. And um, I think he also did the Japanese pavilion at the LA County Museum of Art. Which I love. And it's exquisite. I and, didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't recognize that as a golf. And so some of, you know, some of these things, some of the experimental work, like the idea of the bubble house is just kind of remarkable to me because the idea was, especially after doing decades of just extraordinary estates, to take it back and say, okay, this is gonna be a, a bubble 
that you can just live in, and all these GIs who are coming home from World War II, we're going to provide affordable housing. He spent his entire career making unaffordable housing, and now he's going to make completely. But in that, the whole idea of why you do what you do was kind of lost. And it's funny because, sorry, I have gone so far down the rabbit hole, I've completely <laughs> forgotten where I was going. But I think back to the original idea of what designers do. And one of the things I wanted to talk about is, is your application of art within your work. Have you, I, I've, I've often felt like many designers are uncomfortable with, with original art because it can be so expensive, it's a little dodgy um, as far as specifying it and is a client gonna love it, are they gonna love it the way they see it on the internet, are they gonna love it in person and what if they don't love it, are they gonna hold it? What is your relationship with art on behalf of your clients? Well, I have a, my relationship, I have no idea how unique or different it is from others, but uh, I have a degree in art history and I am, very respectful of art. I'm not, I don't believe in decorating with art to the extent that I don't like to go and buy a bunch of prints to fill halls unless it's a commercial space or something. I would rather the client find something that they like on their own than force something on them that they don't. However, I have this anxiety that <laughs> I want to show them what they have. I have clients who have um, incredible, phenomenal collections and typically they were they don't work with their designer they, the the art community poo-poo's designers you know we get something to go over the sofa la la uh, I don't approach it that way but most uh, art dealers feel that we do and um, so they have really fantastic art that I love placing and working with and working with their curators some have private curators uh, and they're not afraid of art at all. In fact, they never have enough walls. And oftentimes, the collection takes over the design. But for the average person who's building a collection or who just wants to have beautiful art, I really am an advocate of uh, regional artists and emerging artists. And I think that that can be as joy-filling and inspiring in the beginning of an art collection. And so I try to guide clients that way if they are not comfortable with art. You know, I have this sad tale of I showed a, a client in 1993 a Frankenthaler for $125,000. And they said, oh, we don't know. We don't understand this art. And they didn't buy it. We got something else great. It was a mosaic, but an antique mosaic. But now they're buying, you know, a Frankenthaler at the real price, but through their curator. You know, that I think... I don't think that people in general, clients in general, would or maybe should trust an interior designer for a major collection. I think it might need to be more specific. And quite frankly, artists and gallerists will not sell to a, I, I get frustrated because I have clients that want to buy art and the gallerists won't sell it to them because they don't already have an established collection and they don't want their, the art you know, they, they're trying to build the reputation of the of the artist, and so it's hard to buy their art. Or you have to get on a special list, and you have to, you know, it's very, the art business is very arcane and kind of incestuous and involuted. And I just like, I just like the art for the beauty and what it is. I don't understand the investment part. I don't want to get into the investment part. But if I find a painting that I think is a good value and, and wonderful for that client and would make enhance their house, then that's what I really try to push. And I, I, I have about, I would say about more than half of my clients will, they like me to find client, you know, find pieces for them, but I also encourage them to find what they like and then we place it. It's very complicated. People are quite insecure if they haven't bought art. Like, I think in the market, anything under $100,000 is considered decorative, which to me is like gaggy. I mean, to me, to spend $100,000 on a piece of art is an investment. But, but art really shouldn't be bought for an investment. But these people, these big hedge funds that are buying all the art, they're really treating it like a, like a financial investment, which 
that, that is contradictory to my concept of art. So yes, I, I want the quant, but I do want to, uh, young artists to be able to live and survive. There's an artist at this show, Carmen Menza, that I think is incredible. And I try to show her work. It's, she's light-based. And um, I, artists that I believe in and love, I really try to promote and place with clients. But it's, it's a challenge. You know, you either have too much of a good thing or it's kind of hard to get the good thing in there. But it works out. You know, you have to know your client really well and, and work with it. No, no house or any kind of interior is complete without art, without light, without, uh, I think, without fragrance and even without music in a way, at least a music of rhythm of the design, if not literal music. Expanding on that idea a little bit, when, when you're looking, are, are you always, it, it sounds to me like you don't lean back on the things that have always worked for you. You're always, you've always got sort of one eye forward to think what else, what else can I do? And over the past three years, for a number of reasons, it got, it got very challenging mm -hmm. to try to source good partners. We also had a chance to see some partners become lesser partners because customer service has taken a huge hit. Mm -hmm. And for someone like you who's working on projects like this, that's, that's no small thing. So how, how do you find new partners? How do you source new artists? How do you have the time now to do those things? Well, I think as far as finding the artist, you work with galleries and you go to art fairs and you, once you are, we just did a, a the Dwell with Dignity charity thing where a lot of artists donate things and most of the artists came up and gave me their card and you know, you, uh, you just keep your eyes open and, and it grows and many artists have referred to other artists. Uh, and then, of course, like I say, I've always been interested in it. I never miss a gallery. I try, don't to, I try to see shows, and uh, that's, that's part. But one of the reasons I think that we've been okay during all of this, relatively speaking, we've definitely had hiccups, uh, is that we use a lot of local artisans and craftsmen, and we actually, if we're not buying something that's an antique, vintage, or something already made, we... Uh, design and do things custom and that has always kind of kept us from being too caught in the long chain of delivery okay which now of course everybody's doing that so our craftsmen are backed up <laughs> so it's funny that's it's funny you're going there so it's really funny you you, <laughs> you had mentioned um you mentioned chad dorsey yeah so i i had chad sitting exactly where you were are sitting now he was sitting there yesterday and i was asking him about this very thing because one of the things i mentioned was that the idea of the local workroom and the local craftsman has completely exploded and there's you know there's a, a difference between an artisan and a craftsman yes and you know artisans are have always been hard to find the ones that you really love and then when you really love you make that relationship and you'll have a lifelong relationship craftsmen are even harder to find and and precious and precious which is why I said hey do you want to share any of your resources no. you will be shocked to know that yeah, yeah he didn't want to share either so oh, that's not really true I want I wish the best for our craftsmen I usually share them but what happens almost inevitably is that then you lose them or you don't they don't have time to do your work as efficiently so I'm getting a little, right this day and age, I'm a little bit sketchy about sharing, but uh, I certainly want them to have all the work they can. Yeah, no, I totally get it. And at the same time, we're in Dallas, which I have often called one of the design flyovers. Um, design in, in Dallas is extraordinary, but it, in Texas in general, in Houston and Austin and Dallas, and uh, it does not get the credit in Marfa, but it does, it does not get the credit because most people don't take the time to come to Dallas as a design destination. It's not a travel design city. I think that's changing. And because of that, you have such resources here like Roundtop that mm -hmm. once they're discovered though, kitty bar the door <laughs> because it just, it gets, it gets very challenging. Mm -hmm. 
That's true, it can, and it will. And, um, but I'm so happy for the people that are here, that they, the craftsmen, because as much as I want them to do my work, that's not nearly as important as maintaining the craftsmen. And that's one of the great things about great big houses that have a lot of craftsmen involved is that it maintains the craft because if they don't have enough work, you lose them faster than by normal attrition. And uh, it's to find a bronzer or a gilder or a carver or a fine inlay person. Those are so rare and precious that they have to have work or they'll, they, you lose them completely. The trade is lost. Yeah. And so, listen, um, to wrap this up, I cannot thank you enough for the time You're today. welcome. It's been a joy. It has been a joy. And for those who want to, who are here, who want to listen, um, if you're subscribing to Convo by Design, you will get all of these conversations on the podcast. There are also links uh, in the show notes so that they can see your work that we're talking about here today, as well as a couple other little surprises <laughs> okay. that we may have for you. So um, thank you, West Edge Design Fair, for having us. Thank you, WeScover, for sponsoring the, uh, the stage. And thank you all for coming out and listening and seeing and enjoying the show here in Dallas. Thank you. Thank you for having If you've been listening to Convo by Design for a while now, you have heard me tell you about Article. Great style. Really, it's as simple as that with Article. Things have been challenging for design professionals and their clients for, what, two years? Two plus years now? You know this already. What you might not know is that it doesn't have to be if you're looking for exceptionally beautiful modern furniture. Article provides a simple and easy way to creating a beautiful modern space because Article works direct with their manufacturers on production of unique and stunning pieces. Then they work directly by providing this well-crafted design directly to you. This direct relationship means you aren't wondering where your furniture is and you're getting it for an incredible value. What could possibly be better than that? In many cases, the shipping is flat rate, which means no surprises right? Even more, their culture and service are rooted in their core values. Customer obsession, doing it differently, ownership mindset, winning together. If you're a designer, architect, or residential developer, you must check out their trade program. Discounts, special support, and exclusive perks. Article has the beautiful modern furniture you're looking for at an incredible price, at an incredible value, and you need to check them out. Check out article.com, or if you go to the show notes, there is a specific link which will take you, if you're in the trade, directly to their trade program. You have to see it to really believe it. Thank you, Article. Thank you, Sherry. Greatly appreciated. West Edge Design Fair, thank you. And to all of you who came out to the show, thank you. Thank you to Convo by Design sponsors and partners, Thermosol, Article Furniture, York Wall Coverings, Moya Living, Franz Wigner, for your continued support. Of course, thank you for downloading, subscribing, and listening to the show. Thank you for all the emails of support and the great submissions. I love, seriously, I love them, and it has allowed me to find some amazing talent to showcase. Please remember why you do what you do and for whom you do it. Designers, architects, artists, showroom managers, product manufacturers, publicists, magazine editors, publishers, set decorators, and everyone else that makes our amazing industry stronger by the day. This show is for you. That's why I do it. Thanks for listening. Be well. And take today first.